If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent covering Democrats for McClatchy. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This week, we're looking at the state of the resistance against President Trump and his policies, and whether they're pushing the Democratic Party too far to the left. Andrea, as always, we've got some smart people to help us talk about it. Who are they? We've got Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin of Indivisible, a group that wants to hashtag resist the Trump administration so much that they created a guide for it. That's when you know they really mean hashtag business. Well, they're not. Oh, it's a, that's a genuine laugh, folks. That's a genuine <laughs> laugh. To put that in perspective, we've got Matt Bennett from the center-left think tank Third Way, a group that traditionally advocates for Democrats and Republicans to work more together, not less. All right. You ready? Let's do it. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. And our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. So this week, we wanted to check in on the resistance and who better to talk to about that than Leah Greenberg and Ezra Levin of Indivisible. They, in some ways, literally wrote the book on how to resist the Trump administration and congressional Republicans. And they, as well as anybody, have their fingers on the pulse of the liberal opposition to to President Trump. Leah and Ezra, thank you so much for coming on. Great being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So I just think quickly for the listeners, if you can retell the origin story of Indivisible, because I think this is really where a lot of the resistance got started, and maybe even that the resistance was born in, in Texas. Can, can you tell us more about that? Well, so it was born all over, but I mean, uh, so Lee and I, so Lee, I'll start, you can correct everything that I miss. Uh, <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, when the election hit, we weren't on Capitol Hill. We were, um, we, I, my background's domestic anti-poverty advocacy and think tankiness, and Lee has worked in uh, anti-human trafficking work. Um, but we were trying to figure out what to do in that brave new world. And the one thing that we knew was how Congress worked. So as dark as everything was in that time, there was this great silver lining of all these folks suddenly coming out to try to get engaged, trying to figure out how they can effectively resist. Uh, it was unclear exactly what's effective. Like, should we be sending postcards to Paul Ryan? Should we be calling up the White House? What, what exactly works? And we thought, look, we saw how the Tea Party worked. They were smart on local defensive congressional advocacy, focusing on their two senators and their one representative. So we thought, hey, we can demystify Congress for this this burgeoning movement that's out there that we saw hopefully growing. And that's why we released the guide that basically said, look, Donald Trump's agenda doesn't depend on Donald Trump. It depends on whether or not your two senators and your one representative choose to rubber stamp it or choose to resist. And that gives you as a constituent in your own community power. Uh, so we wrote the guide, but the, who cares about a Google Doc? The important thing is that people are actually doing this in their own community. So I'd say the resistance was born in basically every single community in the country right after the election. And, and you guys might I might not say it, but I'll, I'll say it for you. I mean, it has been an enormously influential group, and really, I think the first group people think of of the many, many progressive grassroots organizations that formed after Trump's election, that this is really the, the preeminent one, the one that people think of first when they think of these kinds of groups. And 
you know, and, and it gives you, I think, a lot of influence and, and a really good sense of where the resistance is right now. And I think 18 months into this, generally speaking, wh- people want to know where where is the resistance? And, and I think maybe even specifically, you know, you and I, we, we have talked about this before. How does the resistance feel about its congressional leadership right now on Capitol Hill? Has it only been 18 months? It feels like it was. <laughs> <laughs> feels like much longer, yes. Well, I think that what we've seen around the country is people really digging in and committing to owning their home turf. And so wherever that is, it looks different. So in California, that looks like many, many indivisible groups and members um, pushing Dianne Feinstein to be a leader as a California senator. And also at the same time, really digging in on those uh, 14 congressional districts that are Republican held, uh, and particularly the ones that Hillary Clinton won. In New York, it looks like holding Chuck Schumer accountable for standing up and resisting not just the the things that are the most prominent, the tax scam and the healthcare, or the attacks on healthcare, um, but also things like the Haspel nomination. The Haspel nomination, of course, went through. You know, she was confirmed just recently as CIA director. How disappointing was that? And did it make you think that maybe, you know, Democratic congressional leadership doesn't quite understand what its base wants or uh, wants from it right now? Oh, I think it was incredibly disappointing and really missed opportunity. It was wrong. Uh, disappointing on just the pure policy grounds. We had Democrats joining to confirm a torturer to the leadership of the CIA, and that's bad. We, we don't think you should be confirming a torturer. But on political grounds, too, elections are fundamentally about choices. So if you give people clear choices between one vision for what America is and another vision for what America is, that makes the election meaningful. It gives you something to run on. And I think the missed opportunity of confirming somebody like Pompeo for a State Department or something somebody like Haspel for CIA director, is then the Democratic Party and the Republican Party just start looking the same. And you you uh, decline to strike that strong difference between the two visions for what American government ought to be and what American society ought to reflect, what our values ought to, ought to be. And uh, so, yeah, I, we, we think both on policy grants and political grants that it was a real mistake and uh, real troubling for the folks in the resistance who are building this big blue wave, are coming out and donating their time weekend after weekend, night after night, to make calls to knock on doors, that's demoralizing for them. And I think this big blue wave is inspiring. It is great to see. And the only danger to to it being big and strong in November is that the folks that they think they're showing up for aren't showing up for them. Well, so in in your view, is this just the the only mistake that Democratic congressional leadership has, has made? It's interesting. So I actually, I I think Democratic leadership deserves a lot of credit for some of the battles that we've engaged in over the last 16 or 17 months. I think, you know, if you told us back in November or December that every single Democratic senator was going to vote against some kind of uh, Trump-sponsored attack on the Affordable Care Act, we would have been surprised. If you would have told us that every single Democratic senator was going to vote against a massive tax cut, even despite the fact that it's a tax cut for the rich and corporations, we would have been surprised. And that that takes leadership. You know, that that is tough to get everybody on the same page, and they do deserve credit for that. Has it been true across the board? Has it been automatic without pressure? No. But that's keeping your caucus together on taxes or on health care. Maybe that's using every tool at your disposal to slow things down, like withholding consent when they did that in July or ahead of the July recess on the Affordable Care Act uh, attack. Uh, it, it could change depending on what it is. And it's the responsibility of the folks in Congress to listen to their constituents. You know, I will say there's been quite a bit of success compared to what we thought was possible back in November or December of 2016. You know, Alex and I both covered campaigns for a long time, and including the Tea Party. And when they don't like people, they kick them out. When's that going to happen here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who needs to go? And and our primary is something that Democrats maybe need to embrace. 
Well, we think that you should always be considering whether you are satisfied with your elected officials. And if you're not, if you personally don't think that they're representing you and that they're representing your values, then absolutely. Um, I think it's a much more radical position, in fact, to say that um, just because somebody's been elected from one party, nobody should ever consider whether they're the right representative from that party for, you know, forever and always. And we have seen some efforts like that. Um, I would point to Illinois' third district, where uh, a bunch of indivisible groups actually uh, endorsed a challenger to Representative Dan Lipinski, who did not support the Affordable Care Act, um, who is pro-life, um, who was not standing up in defense of immigrants, and you know endorsed a, a spirited challenger who was a first-time candidate and came very close to unseating him. So that, that has been happening in some cases. I think what we're also seeing is a lot of really spirited contests in open seats, because what we think that the real, the real place where leadership is going to shift over the course of the next year is all of these new Democrats who are going to be coming in in uh, the blue wave. Who are those folks going to be? Where, what communities are they going to be coming out of? Who are they going to be Representing. That's the question for a lot of indivisible groups. So is indivisible pro-primary? Uh, yeah, so we have a, an endorsement guide, actually, that we put out, uh, I think, in the fall of last year. Um, I think it was actually longer than the original Indivisible guide, basically <laughs> making the argument that endorsements is a really, it's a healthy part of demonstrating your constituent power, that, you know, when you're engaging in advocacy, the Indivisible guide is great. It tells you how your member of Congress office thinks. Here's how you can advocate on a specific policy issue. When it comes to elections, advocacy isn't, isn't the only story. There's also this way that constituents can get involved locally. And so the endorsement guide that we put out talks about the role of endorsements in primaries, the reason why you might want to get involved in the primary fight. If you think the Democratic Party is doing just fine, maybe you don't need to get involved in, in the primary. If you think that it's at its lowest point in 90 years in terms of the number of seats it owns, which is factually true, then maybe you should have some say in the direction of the party. And the time to have that discussion isn't the general election, actually. By the time of the general election, you've got your candidate. The primary is the time to the debate the direction of the party. And so in a place like Representative Lipinski, who won his primary, he is now up against a legitimate neo-Nazi. Just to be clear, uh, Ezra wasn't kidding, really, as a neo-Nazi, yeah, an, an, actual, an actual Nazi, not just a, using this as a pejorative term here. Um, it's interesting when you mentioned we were talking about some of the criticism that Chuck Schumer and maybe Nancy Pelosi have faced in office. You talking about primaries, I think, flicks out a little of the, the, the conflict and tension with the DCCC, which is the House Democrats political arm, which in certain circles this year has come under very intense criticism. Um, Texas 7, which is actually a race that, if you're listening to this, has probably already finished. It's having its runoff Tuesday night. But, you know, that, that's a place where the DCCC came in and they dropped this oppo file on one of the candidates who ended up making the runoff anyway, probably was helped by that. What do you feel about the, the DCCC's performance thus far in the cycle? And are they handling things well in the new environment with all of these activists engaged in the process? Sure. Um, I can speak to that specific race where what I can tell you is that indivisible activists on the ground in that district had not actually made a choice in the primary, but they were deeply distressed by the DTRIP's decision to enter the race and to, to tilt the scales for one candidate over the other. We have seen some cases where uh, the DTRIP's actually you know, really played a thoughtful role. So, for example, in some of the California districts, they've come in, they've looked at you know who are the candidates who are really gathering grassroots enthusiasm around them, and they figured out how to come in alongside and support that. In other cases, we've seen folks entering into DTRIP leadership coming in in places where they're not necessarily listening to local voices and they're not necessarily taking advantage of the wisdom of activists who've been on the ground. And that is really troubling. Any examples that come to mind besides Texas 7? I will say, that's about the first praise I've heard from the DCCC <laughs> that doesn't come from the DCCC in, in, in some months, I, I feel like. 
to the, to the point of praise, what we hear uh, in California is actually the inverse of what we hear in some of these other districts where they seem to be parachuting in, which is in California, because of the jungle primary, there's a real desire, even among the grassroots groups, to have somebody help ensure that it's not just two Republicans who win in the top two, because that will sink our chances. What we saw literally today was Cook Political Report move to what should be Democratic pickups in California to the toss-up space because it could be the two Republicans finish in the primary. There are 13 candidates in Rohrbacher's district. Rohrbacher is a, uh, a Republican representative who is, you know, quite vulnerable and has really troubling ties to Russia, should be able to be beat. And yet there are so many Democrats in the race that there's this real danger that they all split the vote and it's just Rohrbacher and, and some other Republican who finishes in the top two. So there is a role, um, if you are listening to the grassroots, as Leah is saying, to, to help ensure the kind of outcome that we want to see. The troubling thing is when it seems like somebody's just parachuting in and picking and choosing winners, which really you know makes the local base angry. I don't know, Leah, if you want to talk about... Sure. In you know. New York, we have... Um, um, an endorsed, an indivisible endorsed candidate, um, Dina Bolter, who had received the support of all four Democratic county parties, as well as a large coalition of grassroots activists. And shortly before the filing deadline, a new candidate entered the race with clear DTRIP support. She was added uh, shortly afterwards to the red to blue list. And, you know, it's since come to light that that candidate has actually personally expressed some very strong pro-life sentiments, which is the kind of thing that you would know if you were a local activist, maybe, but um, not if you've just decided to pick a winner and parachute into the race. In covering an indivisible group in North Texas, I ran into some pushback from folks who did not want to be called a Democratic group at all. They have Republicans in their group, and they felt like that hurt their ability to court Republicans. But you're saying nice things about the D-Trip. Do you also feel that way about the, the Democratic brand? So we are we are independent of the party. Uh, we believe in and ultimately that being independent actually makes the Democratic Party stronger. That independent progressive groups that hold the party accountable for living up to its values play a really important role in ultimately getting the Democratic Party back to a place where people can really identify with and be proud of the brand. So, you know, from what I'm hearing from you guys, I mean, there is some good and there's some bad with congressional leadership and the political leadership in the Democratic Party right now. What I'm curious is, has there been any thought, well, what will happen if Democrats do fall short of winning the House? Well, I mean, my mind immediately goes to the, the negative policy consequences. I mean, I think what will happen is that the the Republicans will make an attempt very early on to repeal, repeal the Affordable Care Act. I think they'll push for an, a second round of tax cuts. I think they'll push to cut Social Security and Medicare. I think they will take their even slim majorities in the House and the Senate as a uh, as a mandate, unfounded as it may be, to push pretty extremist policies. Th- that is my guess of what will happen immediately. What kind of recriminations will happen within the Democratic Party? I, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Do you think the Democrats will retake the House? I think if the election were held today, we would retake the House. The election isn't being held today. Uh, there are a lot of things that can happen between now and November. Is there anything in particular that worries you? Oh, there are tons of... I, I'm worried about everything. <laughs> uh, that's uh, Maybe that's just my nature. Uh, you know, I, I worry about uh, Trump starting some kind of war with North Korea or with Iran. I worry about some kind of additional attack on voting rights or on the integrity of our elections. I am not worried about the indivisible groups and the other resistance groups staying engaged. What we see when we go across the country, whether it's in rural Texas or whether it's in uh, deep blue California, the groups have really started making the shift from doing a lot of advocacy to wanting to do elections. They're endorsing candidates. They're registering people to vote. They're getting out the vote. That's what we want to see, and they are doing exactly that. So there's no fear on that end. The real fear is things somewhat outside our control that the other side might launch in order to change the results. As it gets closer and closer, 
closer to the election and clearer and clearer that they're likely to lose, I, I don't think anything is guaranteed. They they might pull out all the stops. One example of this is uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announcing, hey, we're not going to have recess over the summer. He's thinking about it just so we can prevent the vulnerable Democrats from going back and campaigning. Look, that's a cynical political move and probably pretty smart. Um, that's the kind of changing of the rules. That's a kind of undermining of norms that I think we could increasingly see as defeat for them gets closer and closer. Leah and Ezra, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great having the conversation. Thanks. Thank you. All right, Alex, let's turn now to some Democrats who think more about bipartisanship than resistance. Matt Bennett is an alum of the Bill Clinton White House and the co-founder of the self-proclaimed center-left group Third Way. Hey, Matt, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So, it's a pretty extraordinary time to be a Democrat, I take it. It certainly seems that way from the outside. You know, just to, to start us off here, do you feel like that the resistance, that the quote, quote unquote, hashtag resistance, has this been a good thing for Democrats? Without a doubt. It's been a crucial thing. It's the reason that Democrats have a hope of retaking the House, have an outside chance of taking the Senate are expected to do pretty well in governor's races and will probably do well down ballot in state legislative and other races. It's the, the resistance is the energy that everyone talks about on the left. It isn't the same as kind of far left policy ideas. Those things get conflated a lot. But the anger that people are feeling about what is happening here, in particular around President Trump and the terrible things that he and his administration are doing, is the is the engine that is driving democratic fortunes right now in your view i mean there is there is a a bifurcation between the energy of a lot of democrats and liberals and some of them more like bernie sanders style policies for sure every single democrat in america feels the energy every single one of us gets up every day angry that this president is doing what he's doing and determined to get rid of Trumpism as quickly as we possibly can in any way we possibly can. That is universal among Democrats. What isn't universal is the strategy for how to do that and the policy ideas that would underlie that strategy. Why don't you tell the listeners about how you see what, what those that the underlying strategy and those policies should be for Democrats at this time? We think that the most important thing for Democrats to do is to, in addition, of course, to prosecuting the case against Trump. That Everybody agrees we have to do that. And there is rather significant unanimity around the kind of suite of social issues that used to divide Democrats, abortion, guns, immigration. Uh, almost all Democrats agree for the most part on those kinds of things. Where there is a discussion or a debate going on inside the party is how do we define the economic moment that we live in, the anxiety that people are clearly feeling about this moment, about how globalization and technology have have really shifted the ground beneath a lot of people's feet and have left a lot of communities and people behind. How do we talk about that and what are we offering going forward? That is less important uh, to define in 2018 in the midterm elections because those are almost always, and this one is going to be, basically a referendum on the president. But the minute that is over and we turn the corner towards 2020, that's when that debate is really going to get joined in a big way. 
as somebody who is an advocate for, I'm quoting your website here, moderate ideas in a time of political extremism, is there a risk of this going overboard? Have you seen that on the Hill anywhere yet? Well, uh, a couple of things. One is moderate changed its meaning in a big way. What what we're really more focused on now, because that used to be the divide inside the Democratic Party used to be, you know, are you a pragmatist? The problem is you can't be pragmatic when Donald Trump is president. Nobody, n- nobody in Democratic politics thinks that we can cut deals with this guy, at least uh, there's been zero evidence that we can so far. So it's not about pragmatism. What we really think defines the difference between what, say, Senator Sanders is offering and what we would like to see offered is um, a sense of modernity. We believe that we've got to talk to people about the digital age, about the, the moment that we live in now where the threat to them and their families and their jobs and their economic stability comes from robots or from trade or from all the things that combine to make people so anxious. And what we're offering them can either be expanded versions of the programs that Democrats have been offering for, in some cases, 70 years, which is what you're getting from from some on the left, or they can be a new suite of things that really address the moment they live that we live in now. So we're not arguing over whether to be more practical or whether to cut deals with Trump. No one wants to do that, and including him, apparently. What we're talking about is, what are the suite of things that we're offering people? What, are, what is the vision for the future that we're offering people uh, as we head towards 2020? Do you think that Democrats coming after you would ever label themselves that way as a moderate? Is that Are we about to retire that term? I know on the right, like if you were to call somebody center-right in Texas, no matter what their politics are, they would not be okay with that. They would insist that they are a conservative. Yeah, they would run screaming from that. There's no question. I think there is a big difference what's going on in, uh, on the right and on the left. On the right, it has become toxic to be a moderate, and that's a terrible thing. And as you say, it is almost impossible to survive if, if you carry that label in a lot of places, not everywhere, but a lot of places. And what they fear more than being called an extremist is being called a moderate because the threat to them, for the most part, comes from the right in primary threats. Uh, That may change a little bit after 2018 if Democrats do very well in in a wide range of districts. But for now, that's where Republicans fear the threat. On the left, that isn't really true. Primaries, with a couple of notable exceptions recently, but for the most part, primaries are not the threat to incumbent Democrats or to establishment Democrats. What they have to do is is win a broad swath of general election support. And that means that uh, the term hasn't lost as much currency. However, with Trump as president, it doesn't mean practical. It doesn't mean deal cutting. It, it means uh, a different set of ideas that we're offering the people than perhaps folks who support Senator Sanders. I mean, to me, it's one of the most interesting questions of this election cycle. And it's one I find myself coming back to time and time again. Is what's happening on the left equivalent to what happened on the right when President Obama took office with the rise of the Tea Party? Um, it, it sounds like you don't think that they're, they're maybe that there's a comparison, but they're not in any way the same. I think that there's been some aspiration on the left to do that, uh, which I think is a bad idea. But so far, they haven't been able to execute on that aspiration. Why, why do you think that is? Well, a couple things. One is our revolution, which was the group that was formed not necessarily by Bernie Sanders, but by his supporters, is really struggling. But what they set out to do was to support people who were um, pure 
in their ideology. And in fact, there was a, a story that ran yesterday about the struggles that our revolution's been having. And Jeff Weaver was quoted saying, look, what we're really interested in is people's ideology, not necessarily in winning. Our view is, with Donald Trump as president, that is a kind of a dangerous position for Democrats to take, because the only thing that matters right now is taking power from the people who are enabling someone that we regard as a fundamental threat to our values. Winning is everything right now. And ideological purity has got to take a back seat to how can we win these elections? Now, to their credit, most people uh, on the left share that view. They were celebrating, for example, Connor Lamb's win in Pennsylvania, even though he doesn't really comport with their idea of an ideal Democrat. I, I kind of like the joke that Connor Lamb managed to be everybody to everyone. Amazing. <laughs> it, it's it was, amazing. It was one of the rare candidates who's able to, to pull that off. Indeed. Uh, but what you saw with our revolution, I mean, they supported Dennis Kucinich in Ohio against Richard Cordray, who was a very good, rock-solid Democrat. And that, that kind of thing is not helpful. Now, they've scored a handful of victories. For the most part, they're losing in these primaries. They've, they've lost in most statewide and congressional and state legislative races where they've had candidates running against more conventional Democrats. But in a couple of, of cases they've won, our fear is that those candidates they supported who were able to knock off more establishment opponents may not be able to win in the fall, and that is going to be very damaging. But you will eventually have a giant primary coming up on the left uh, for this presidential race and, and a lot of candidates, a lot of current lawmakers. What does the, this look like when you have you know, however many, a half dozen senators running for president? Uh, yeah, that's the enormous question, and nobody really knows the answer to that yet. And we probably won't know until soon after the primaries are over, because as you know, we're in this kind of uh, phony war period of the primaries where everyone's pretending they're not running for president, even though we could name the people who are. People are going to be angling for a lane in a very crowded field. And we don't know whether that will be broken down by inside Washington versus outside Washington, age, or a set of ideas. But eventually, and I think that will begin in earnest in November, we're going to start to see a sorting out of candidates. What, what you're seeing among the senators is a little bit different than what you're seeing among the uh, 2020 aspirants, or at least the putative ones, who are outside of Washington. The senators tend to be drifting towards some of the proposals that we've seen from Bernie Sanders, and the non-senators seem not to be. So I don't know whether that dynamic will continue, but it's been kind of interesting so far. I mean, you, you mentioned how some of the senators are drifting those proposals. I mean, just recently we've had Senators Cory Booker and Kristen Gillibrand, who would be on anyone's short list for uh, the, the 2020 presidential fight. They signed up for a jobs guarantee, which at its heart is basically spending hundreds of billions of dollars to guarantee that every person who wants a job gets a job. That's not the sort of thing we've we've talked about in decades, if not even since FDR's time. I mean, do you, do you really think that there is going to be a lane for, for moderate candidates, for someone to stand up on a debate stage in 2020 and say, you know what, the jobs guarantee goes too far, that that's not what we should be doing? For sure. And I, I would argue that that's a perfect example of modernity versus past. As you point out, we haven't done a jobs guarantee since the 30s. That's kind of an old idea. And it was a really good idea when we had 25% unemployment. Right now, we have 3.9% unemployment. And to give everyone a federal job, most estimates 
reveal would cost maybe trillions of dollars, would really disrupt labor markets, and would increase the size of the federal workforce by 10 times. So I think it's, it's an impressively large idea, but that doesn't make it a good one. And I think there's going to be real debate when we get to a a real presidential campaign about whether these are the kinds of things we need to be offering the public and whether that's the vision that Democrats want to take forward against Trump in the in the general election. Have you have you been alarmed, surprised or or maybe even happy with how the House Democratic primaries have played out so far? I would say on the whole, happy with how they played out. Uh, Does that surprise you that you're happy at this point? Not really. Mm -hmm. I think uh, what Democrats tend to do in primaries at every level, and you see this in presidential primaries most clearly, but it happens at every level, is they pick the candidate they think can win. And in this moment, as we talked about earlier, winning is paramount above all because stopping Trump is the thing that voters desperately want to do. And so they find that the candidate they think can win in a general election. And in most cases, I would say in about 80% of the cases that we've seen so far since 2016, uh, they've picked a candidate that, that we would agree would have the best chance of beating Trump. You still feeling good about November? Yes. Are, they gonna, are Democrats going to win the House? Well, my last prediction about general election outcome was staggeringly wrong, uh, along with everybody else's. So. With that caveat, yes, I think Democrats will win the House. I do think there's a lot of hand-wringing going on because Trump's approval numbers are ticking up and because the general, the generic ballot numbers are, are starting to tighten. And that is nerve-wracking for sure. But I think if you look at where people have actually voted since 2016 and the turnout numbers and the enthusiasm, I just think there's almost no doubt. And the Senate map? So hard. Uh, If everything goes perfectly, there's a chance for Democrats to take the Senate. We have very, very strong candidates in the three states where we have a chance of pickups, and we have great senators in the 10 states where things are tough. It would require running the table, and that's hard to do. Hey, Matt, we want to thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So before we go, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the lightning round. And I am so excited about mine. I'm going to go first. This is something of an update on a show we did a few weeks ago. Listeners will remember we really took a deep dive into the frustration of many teachers across the country. Well, Democrats just this week came out with their own response. Leaders Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi rolling out the quote-unquote better deal agenda for teachers. So we Democrats have a plan to help our teachers and students. A major boost to teacher pay, investments in school infrastructure, and increasing academic opportunities because our investment in teachers' work should match the work they are doing for our kids. They plan to repeal part of the uh, GOP-passed tax law last year to pay for $50 billion in teacher payments or, or money for teacher salaries and $50 billion to improve buildings and schools. And it is part of their effort to try to capitalize on this movement. And I will tell you, I've even heard some Republicans, um, some very smart Republicans who have expressed concern that these teacher movements really could shift the politics in the individual states that they're happening and maybe even to some degree nationally. So that's something to watch congressional Democrats trying to take advantage of this, this movement now. Okay, Andrea, what you got? Today is primary runoff day in Texas, and I know what you're thinking. Lots of other states have primaries, but here's my pitch. This one's important. If you want to know something about who is coming to Congress next year, 
Our delegation is getting a makeover in Texas, eight open races, and most of them are not competitive in November, so we'll know a lot about who's coming to Congress. Everything's bigger in Texas, including the primaries, it seems. All right, good show. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith, and thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.